I'm going to tell you to go ahead and turn back to Ephesians 2, but I promise we're not going to be there until the very end. So you can turn there. We're going to be a little bit all over the place. Your son's going to preach my sermon with me. That's cool, though. He's allowed to preach my sermon with me. Um, we're going to be a little bit all over the place. You can, you can turn to Ephesians 2. You can also, um, if you want, nah, I'll just give them to you as we go. Because I would say, put a finger here. You'd, you'd be sitting there with like your fingers all wrapped up inside your Bible, and it would be very distracting for you. So this is going to feel, this to me, as I was finishing prepping it, um, is going to feel a little bit like Theology of God 2.0. Because in that sermon, when we first kicked off this series about what we believe at CRC, we just kind of established these are all different aspects of God's character. So this week, as we get into the sovereignty of God, it's going to feel like this is just another one of those attributes. Why, why are we singling this one out so heavily? Why are we pulling this one out to talk about it? Why couldn't that just kind of make its way into the rest of the list? Um, why is it important that we take special care to discuss the sovereignty of God? Um, and I think there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, the first of which is it's one of the harder ones to grasp in a lot of ways because we're talking about how God is so much bigger and more powerful and, and infinite and all these things that we can't, we can't comprehend. Like we're, we're small, finite, created beings that don't fully understand who God is and the enormity of who he is. So it, it's, a hard, it's a hard piece of that. Um, so I think it's worth taking time to really understand what sovereignty means um, because of that. Also, the way that we understand and love God's control over creation helps us to rightly communicate who he is, and speak truth into a world that doesn't understand why things happen the way they do, that doesn't understand the way things work. So it's, it's an important conversation for us to have. It's an important subject matter for us as the church to try to wrap our brains around because we live in a world where so many times we're left with people asking the question, why does this happen this way? Why did, why did, why did this thing happen? Or, or why are we experiencing this? If you're saying that, that, you, that you, you follow a God who is loving, and we always stop, and again, we talked about this when we talked about theology of God several weeks ago. We stop at loving because that's the one that we like the most. But if we, if we follow this God who's loving, why do we continue to see all of these awful things that happen? And... Why, why is there all this evil present in the world? So we have to have this conversation so that we can answer those questions. Not saying that because we have a firm understanding of the theology of sovereignty that now we're going to be able to answer any question and all of a sudden everybody that asks us questions is just going to be saved. Because, because one of the things that Caleb talked about last week and one of the things that we're going to continue to talk about this week is there's no one thing that we do to save ourselves there's no one thing that we say that can save somebody else. We talked about it last week. Salvation is a gift of God given to us by His grace, right? That's what we were talking about. That's what we were memorizing this week in Ephesians chapter 2. And so we need to understand who God is and why He's sovereign so that we can, we can speak truth 
but, but it's also going to fill us up, build us up with this, with this joy, knowing that, that the God who is over everything is intimately involved with us and is working with us and in us and through us as believers and as the church. So, so we're going to look in a couple of different ways that, that God um, is sovereign. And the first thing that we're going to talk about is that God is sovereign over his creation. We didn't really get too heavily into this at any point up to this point. We didn't, we didn't single out a single week just to talk about the idea of God as creator. But, but God is the creator. If we do not first acknowledge that God is the one who set this whole thing in motion, the rest of what follows would be meaningless. If all of life and all of existence and all of the, the cosmos was a happy accident that just kind of came together, then, then there's really no point in continuing to discuss who God is. If it, wasn't, if it wasn't that God put all of this together and set things in motion, everything else falls apart. I remember this was, this was years ago, like a long time ago, when we were, this was, I don't even remember, I don't even know if I was out of college yet, so like ages and ages and ages ago. Uh, there was a guy who came to speak, when we were, this was while we were at Heritage, and he used this metaphor, he used to be a flight traffic controller, and he tried to take over and do some flight traffic control at Chicago O'Hare Airport. I remember him telling this story. Because he said, I'd done smaller airports before, but when you go to Chicago O'Hare, which is like the most planes per hour of any airport in the world or something like that, he said he immediately got overwhelmed just because he started running out of planes. And he said the people over, over his shoulder that were giving him a shot at trying to control all these planes could just look at the radar and see all the planes starting to go a little bit outside of where they ought to be. Um, and they yelled at him, because the, the way it comes in is you just get this list that kind of fills up from the bottom. They said, go to your bottom strip. Get the first one. Get the first one right and then go up. And it was, his, his metaphor was, if we, don't, if we don't start with the right foundation, if our house is built on sand instead of a rock, if, if we don't build our house on something that is solid, then everything that you build up on top of it just kind of crumbles and falls apart. So if we don't first acknowledge that God is the creator, the rest of what we build up about how he works within creation doesn't matter because it's not his. How could we make an argument for God being over creation if he merely exists near it? or just happened upon it. Uh, John 1, verse 3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. The universe is not an accident. Therefore, what happens within it isn't either. That's the big point. God intentionally created everything. And God is intentionally working within his creation because it is his to do with what he pleases because he is the one who made it. So God is the creator. The second part of that. God preserves his creation. Um... 
I don't want to get into a debate, so I'll say one of the best superhero movies ever made was The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan. I got an amen. That's like the, that's like the first amen I've gotten this morning. Hopefully I'll get a few more. The whole premise, and this movie's old enough that I don't even care. I'm just going to spoil it. Like, the whole, the, the Joker's whole motivation in The Dark Knight was, I want to be an agent of chaos. I just want to remove whatever order there is and watch the city kind of burn itself up from within. That was, that was the idea. Remove, remove whatever, whatever sovereignty is kind of keeping everything in order. Remove the, the, remove the white knight. Remove this, this guy with his picture with his shiny white teeth hanging on the wall that makes everybody feel like, oh, somebody's fighting for us. Take away that idea and everything just kind of falls apart. People start tearing each other apart. Because that, that's what we're naturally inclined to do. I wasn't sure if I was going to use this one, but I'm going to because it's just too perfect. We don't have to get into a bigger discussion about whether or not you like The Walking Dead. But Walking Dead, season one, episode one, very first episode, they're trying to wrap their brains around what they're seeing. They just see all this chaos, the cities falling apart and all this, and they say, man, look at what this thing turned us into. Look at how bad we've become. And somebody responds by saying, this didn't make us this way. This just revealed us for who we really were. Like it just showed that, that in a sense, we are agents of chaos. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about depravity. We are, we are so filled with sin that, that naturally everything wants to devolve into chaos. Everything wants to fall apart because sin taints everything and everything wants to spin out of control. Think about what happens when a city wins a Super Bowl. Did anybody see what happened in Philadelphia? This was ridiculous. It's like, we won the Super Bowl. Let's destroy our city. Okay. Like, like this, is, this is who we are. And, and, and we have to understand a little bit of who we are so that we appreciate that much more that this whole thing hasn't blown itself up yet because that's what we naturally would, would kind of cause us to do. This, this is a picture of what creation with sin would naturally fall into. This is what we would naturally want to do, fall apart at the seams. Think about just how amazing it is that we are on a giant sphere hurling through space millions or however many miles per hour around a giant nuclear explosion. But we're at the perfect distance to where when you walk outside today, you're like, man, the sun's out. I'm super happy. Not you walk outside, oh man, the flames from that nuclear explosion are melting my face. Or we're not so far away that you walk out and it's just like you're frozen and dead. <laughs> like, how amazing is it that that works, that that doesn't spiral out of control, that, that, that an asteroid hasn't come and flown into our, our planet. That's because of Bruce Willis, though. He's the one that kept that one from happening. But, like, it's, it's amazing 
that all of these things work the way they do. But we know that it's not just happenstance that it happens that way. It's not a happy accident that these things haven't completely fallen into chaos. It's not an accident that we haven't absolutely destroyed ourselves and wiped ourselves off the face of the earth as we slowly chase after more and more sin and destroy this whole thing that God created. Hebrews 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. He keeps this thing together. He is the one who has kept us from completely devolving into utter chaos and tearing ourselves apart at the seams. Because he created this thing, yes, sin is in it, and yes, it is broken, and yes, we are dying, and yes, everything seems awful. But instead of wiping us off the face of the earth, instead of destroying all of creation and hitting the reset button, like he said he ought to do on several occasions. He keeps this thing together. He keeps us from spiraling out of control because he is the creator and he is powerful enough to keep this thing in order. He is the one who keeps us from spinning off into space and, and burning up as we run into a star. Or he's the one who keeps, who keeps us from absolutely tearing ourselves apart as a society. So God is the creator and he's the one who keeps his creation together by his power. Next point. And this is where we're going to get into a lot of detail. God controls and orchestrates the actions of his creation. God controls, there are so many different ways I could say this. God controls everything that happens within his creation. God is actively at work in the affairs of his creation in two ways. The first, God controls the inanimate parts of his creation. This is particularly helpful to me right now because for like the last few months, Ellie has realized that maybe boogie monsters are not so scary, but the idea of a storm or a tornado, don't say that word too loud around her or she will not sleep tonight. <laughs> I mean, it's been like, is it warm enough outside for there to be a tornado? No, it's winter. Okay. Or, hey, go get in the shower. Is it going to storm? Like, like, these are the conversations that we have on a daily basis. She's, she's terrified of the elements. And, and I've been taking the opportunity, especially this week as I've been studying this, to just remind her, hey, listen, God's in control of this. He's got this. Psalm 135, 6 and 7. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. It is he who, set, who makes the clouds rise in the ends of, at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the brain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. Psalm 148, 7 and 8 says, Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps, fire and hail, snow 
and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. All of these things that we see are under the control of God. So if there is a storm or if there is a sun, it really isn't just because, oh, well, the system set it up this way so that we're going to have rain or we're not going to have rain. No, we have rain because God wants us to have rain. We have a storm because God wants us to have a storm. We have big wind or we have a drought Whatever that is, God is actively in control of all of those things. He's even at work in things that seem like they're matters of of chance. Proverbs 16.33, the lot is cast into the lap, but but every decision is from the Lord. Your team won the coin flip during the Super Bowl? It's because God wanted it to happen that way. You're like, God doesn't care about the coin flip in the Super Bowl. Yes, he does. He does care, because it's in his creation and it's under his control. It may not really matter. It may not be the biggest deal to him, but he cares because every lot that is cast, the Lord decides the answer. You flip a coin, you roll some dice, you shuffle the cards and deal them out, obviously playing Go Fish, obviously. All of that is under God's control. So even the things that don't have a brain, that don't make decisions, that don't, that don't understand what all is happening, the things that have no life within creation, God, God controls and manufactures what they do. And he cares deeply about those things. Because if any one of those things wasn't by his command or by his, under his authority, then he's not sovereign over all of creation. So every, it's not like he's going to pick and choose which things he's going to have control over. He's, he's got all of it. So God controls the inanimate parts of his creation, and God directs the actions of those within his creation. And this, this is where we get into the part of sovereignty that are less uh, palatable for many within the church and really not appreciated <laughs> to those outside the church. So what, you're telling me that God tells, makes me do everything that I do? Um, let's see what the Bible says. Jeremiah 10, 23 says, I know, O Lord, that the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks, to direct his steps. Proverbs 20, verse 24 says, A man's steps are from the Lord. How then can man understand his way? Um, Where I end up landing as I read these verses is not where every single person in the church lands when they read these verses. Um, I don't want to pretend to say I'm going to say this, and and any theologian that you listen to will say it exactly the same way as I do. I'm telling you, when I read this, this is what I read. It says, God directs the steps of man. That makes me think, if I turn left, it's because God wanted me to turn left. If I turn right, it's because God wanted me to turn right. If I step with my left foot first or my right foot first, that's what I read. Um... That God is in complete control of the affairs of his creation. 
that, that we aren't deists um, who believe that God created everything and then left and left his creation to kind of do whatever it pleased. He didn't detach himself and, and, and go away from his creation after he made it. In fact, it's that, that he is our creator. It's the fact that he put all this stuff together and didn't leave it that confirms his control over everything. And I, and I cannot emphasize this idea enough. The idea that God as creator is, to me, one of the strongest points for my understanding of why God is in control of everything. Because he's the one who gets to say what happens in his creation because he's the one who made it. Romans 9.20 says, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Paul's, Paul's asking a hypothetical question. You who were created by God are now going to complain that you don't like the way he made it. I'm going on a little mini rant, but this mini rant connects really well to this idea. I don't, I don't, and I'm not going to spoil this one because it's only been out for a couple of months. There was a lot of debate over whether or not The Last Jedi was a good movie. Right? I don't know how many of you are like well-versed in what goes on behind the scenes in Star Wars stuff like I am. Maybe you don't listen to hour-long podcasts about you know, Star Wars movie news once a week. That's okay. You don't have to. But let me tell you, when Star Wars Episode Eight came out, everybody was like, either this was the greatest thing I've ever seen or this thing was awful. This is the worst Star Wars movie ever. Big divide. And a lot of people that were on the negative side, the complaint was, that's not how I think he should have made that. That's not what the story should have been. I don't like that he made this decision. I don't like that the characters did this thing. It doesn't have to be Star Wars. It could be any movie you don't like. It could be, I read this book, and then they made the movie about the book, but they changed this and this and this, and I don't like that. It's basically, you created this thing, and I don't like the way you created it. That's the argument that we kind of naturally fall into when we don't like something. Somebody made something this way, I don't like the way you made it. I could come up with an infinite number, I think, of metaphors for this. But I'll leave it at that, in that when we face something, when we come across something that we, we don't like, or that we're, we're not a fan of the way that worked out, and we say, that's wrong, I don't like it, stop it. Or, let me tell you why I don't want to accept this as the truth, or whatever. It's, we're doing this. We're saying back to God, why have you made me like this? We don't, we don't get to say this is how it should have been made because we weren't the ones who made it. You can, you can like or dislike. You can, you can love or hate the way things are, but you don't get to say it shouldn't have been made this way. I, I want to affect change. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. God created everything. He set it up exactly how it is that he reveals it to us in Scripture. And we're kind of left to love it or hate it. As God's creation, the question isn't whether or not we want God to be in charge of us, but whether or not we like that he already is.
And yes, this leads me to my understanding of Scripture that God is sovereign over our salvation. Yes, that means I believe that it's purely by God's choice that we're saved. Which means, yes, I believe that God is still sovereign when many do not respond to the gospel. Like, I, I, I'm saying this is me. I'm reading this. I'm reading the Bible. This is what I'm saying. This is where I am in this. And that's a hard thing to hear when you're like, God's sovereign over, over people accepting him. And he's sovereign over people rejecting him. How does that work? I don't like that. Why, why would that happen? We're not going to read all of Romans chapter 11. In fact, we're not going to read any of Romans chapter 11 here today. Uh, I would recommend in your community groups this week, if you don't already have more than enough stuff to talk through, I would recommend as a group, read Romans chapter 11 and then just discuss what it's saying. Because I think it starts to address a lot of why God would allow evil and why God would not save everyone and why God has worked the way he has throughout all of time. So read Romans 11 as a group, I would say, and then discuss it. And I think it, it will tie in perfectly. I, I, we don't have time to read it, and I think this would be an easy one for you guys to kind of go through. It's not super long. So wait, you're saying that God is sovereign over good and evil? I think that's what Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 45, 7. I've read this before. It says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does, who does all these things. God is saying, I'm in charge of everything. I create everything. I create the circumstances in which everything takes place. And if you had gotten me in on this conversation about, I don't know, seven, eight years ago, my initial response, and maybe this is something you're thinking would be, but that's not fair. You're saying some of these people don't even have a chance. Some of these people don't even have a shot. That's, that's, that's not fair. I want to list a couple of other things that aren't fair. It's not fair that 17 people die in a school because of the evil actions of an individual. It's not fair that some friends of ours woke up one morning just a few days ago to find that their infant had passed away. It's not, it's not fair that a 7.2 earthquake can just all of a sudden pop up and rock an entire city. These are, these are awful things that happen, and we should not be dismissive and cavalier about the idea, oh, well, God's in control. It is what it is. We move forward. No, that's, that's not what we're... These are awful things that are happening. And these are awful things that are happening because of the presence of sin in the world, because we are broken, because, like I said, creation now wants to spin out of control. Creation wants to, to fight back against God because, like we talked about a few weeks ago, we are so overtaken by sin. No, it's not fair 
But it also isn't fair that the one innocent person who ever walked on earth was murdered because he brought a message that people didn't want to hear. It's not fair that we're sinful and broken and deserving of hell, and yet God saves some of us. That's not fair. But we're obsessed with the idea of fair. We're obsessed with everybody should get the same thing. I'm not going to go off on too big a rant on this. I promise. Our complaint shouldn't be, God, you're not being fair. Because, because fair would be our complete and total destruction because we are not him and we are tainted by sin. We are stained by sin and completely broken. Our reaction should not be to become angry that evil is present, but instead that we should be moved to cry out to God. Revelation 6, this is verses 9 through 11. It says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You may be sitting there thinking, that sounds really dark. We've got to wait longer so that more people can die for the cause of Christ. But think through what we studied just a few months ago in 2 Peter when it said the fact that God hasn't come back yet is grace. Because the longer he holds off his judgment, the longer he waits to return, the more time he is given for more to be saved. The longer he is giving us to go and go out into the nations and say there is a hope. It doesn't have to end in chaos and death and pain. There is a hope. There is something for us to wait for. And God, in His mercy, is sovereignly waiting to destroy us. So we don't become angry and say, God, you're not being fair. It's not fair that you're picking winners and losers. That is a small view of what is happening here. Instead, we cry out to God and we say, God, please have mercy, relent. Save us and then come back and put an end to this. We cry out to him because, because he's the one who can stop this. But we're also reminded that we're in this. We see this because he is, he is demonstrating mercy by saving more the longer we're here. Here's what Paul thought it sounded like when people were crying out, that's not fair. Romans 9.14 says, What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the important part. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is good news. It's not on us to save ourselves. Just like we were talking about last week. We, we don't save ourselves. We couldn't save ourselves. But God can save us. It's on God who has mercy and it's on God who is actually powerful enough to do something about it. We are not powerful enough to save ourselves. 
So it's amazing that God didn't just create us, then leave, disappear, and leave us to kind of spin out of control and then come back and hit the reset button however many thousands and thousands of years later. No, he didn't. He created us, and he stays intimately involved in his creation. And he is, by his mercy and through his grace, saving us and drawing us to himself. This is a good thing for us, especially in the church. Like I said, fair would be us being left to be destroyed. Fair would have been Jesus, the only innocent one, not being murdered just because we didn't like his message that we couldn't save ourselves by our actions. So I told you to turn back to Ephesians. This is where we go back to Ephesians. Paul's going to give us a wonderful example, start in chapter 1, of, of how we as believers ought to respond to the idea of God's sovereignty. I'm going to start... In verse 3, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him from before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. I'm going to steal a trick from a really smart guy named John Piper. He always says, when you read a verse, especially one as wordy and with as many run-on sentences as Paul tends to like to write, figure out what's at the bottom of each of those thoughts. Like, what's, what's the base thought? What's the root thought that that Paul's trying to get at. There's lots of descriptive pieces. But three or four times in that section, the root of everything is to the praise of his glorious grace, to the praise of God, to the praise of his glory, that Christ might, our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glorious grace. All of these sentences, all of these thoughts end with, don't you know that God chose you to save you so that you would bring praise and glory to him for how he works? That's the response. It's not, but God, you're not doing this this way. No, it's God, you saved me. <laughs> this is amazing. And I love you and I want to praise you for this. I want, I want to shout it out. 
our understanding of God's sovereignty should naturally lead us to worship because we realize that it's in his sovereignty that he has seen fit to save us. And yes, this is a great message, especially for us who are saved in the church. I'm going to give you one more verse. This is Ephesians 2.10. You should listen really closely to this because it might be coming back around to something you're going to probably want to remember this week. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has already lined all of this up for us. We have nothing to fear. You may be saying, so you're saying that God's sovereign over salvation. That means he's going to save the people he's going to save, so there's nothing for us left to do. No, that's not what I'm saying. No, we still have a great commission. We still have a call to go. We still have good works that were created in Christ Jesus, which God prepared beforehand for us that we should do them. There are still things that we should do as followers of God. We don't just get saved and say, well, he saved us, now he's going to go save some other people. No, we've been told, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We still have things that we are supposed to do as the church. But here's the cool thing. God's already got all that stuff set up, so we have nothing to fear. This is the place that I want us as the church to be when we think about God being in charge. Not thinking of, oh, it's this God who turns us all into robots. And it's this God who's making us do every single little thing. But instead, how about thinking about the fact that you have a God who's powerful enough to create everything that you see and everything that will ever be seen and everything that has ever been seen. That has a specific idea, a specific plan for you as an individual. He has a specific conversation lined up for you to have at lunch when we get done here. He has, a specific, he has a specific calling for you for the words that you're going to say when you leave here and you talk to somebody in the drive-thru at McDonald's when you inevitably get a Diet Coke on the way home. Maybe that's not everybody. But we don't have to worry about what we're supposed to say because God's already worked all this stuff out. We don't, have to, we don't have to worry about, well, how am I going to perfectly present God to somebody? It doesn't matter. Just, just, just love him really passionately and talk about how amazing and wonderful he is and how despite who we are, he has shown us grace. He has shown us mercy. Before I close, I just feel like I need to go back and say one thing. I threw Romans 11 at you, which I think is a great answer to some of the hard questions that we tend to ask about why is evil present in the world. And I feel like I need to at least make a note about that now. Because this is a week where a lot of really bad things have happened. And it's really easy to be like, look at how mean God is. That he's or you would say, your version of God, you might say that to me, your version of God is a mean version of God who makes all of these things happen. To which I say, these are awful things. 
and the sinful things that were carried out by sinful people were carried out by sinful people who are responsible for their sinful actions. But I also know that we have a God who's worked out everything from before time, who does amazing things because of the presence of evil in the world. Genesis 50 said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you were trying to use as, a, as an evil action against me, God was working in that the whole time because he was going to do something great that he was going to use to save, to save not only your life, but the lives of our family and the millions of people who will come out of our family into this great nation. And through that nation, he's going to send salvation. Like, evil is a real thing. God is not evil. We are evil. But God is at work in using our evil to accomplish amazing things so that he can still shower the world with his grace and mercy. And I don't have a great way to explain how that is. I was looking at a bunch of like theology books this week and one guy even just, just wrote a sentence that said, you know what? There's something undefined within scripture about the nature of how God is in charge of everything and yet God is not evil. We just believe that he's not because he says, I am the creator and I'm working these things out the way I am. He gets to say who's right and wrong. He gets to say what's good and evil. It is our responsibility that we're evil even though he is at work in all of it. And that's hard to hear and that's not something we love to see. It's not something that any of us want, but instead, like I said, of shaking our fists at God and saying, that's not right, that's not fair. We should just pray and beg, come Lord Jesus and make all of this right. Let's pray. Let's pray.